Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Get stories before anyone else, seven days a week. You can catch up on everything you need to know before you've even had your kippers. Mmm. Headliners every morning at 5 a.m. Only on GB News, the People's Channel, Britain's News Channel. Good afternoon, Britain. Good afternoon, Britain. Join us, Tom and Emily, to find out what's happening in the heart of Westminster and why it matters to you. Weekdays from midday, we bring you the most compelling stories from across the United Kingdom. And from your doorstep to our inbox. That's right, we want to hear from you. GB News, Britain's News Channel. Martin Daubney. Weekdays from 3 p.m. You have a, a president in uh, President Biden who's not enforcing the law that was passed by Congress. President Obama, criticize him or not, actually enforced the law and, and was deporting people that had crossed illegally. Of course, President Trump enforced the law and improved the law to make sure that uh, and, and worked with Mexico to have the remain in, in Mexico policy. Biden has abandoned federal policy. In fact, he's deliberately trying to let in as many immigrants as possible. More, for, for the Democrats, more is better and less is racist. Just astonishing. And the statement that um, Greg Abbott put out is really feisty stuff. He said the federal government has broken the contract between the United States and the state of Texas. And in the, the eye numbers, Greg, are simply eye-watering. Six million illegal immigrants have crossed our southern border in just three years, Governor Abbott says. That's more than the population of 33 States that's in right. the United States. Astonishing numbers. And, and Martin, that's just Texas. If you add Arizona and other border states, you know, it's pushing 10 million. By the end of Biden's term, it'll be 11 million. A study by Yale University a few weeks ago, uh, three very liberal professors that did the study estimate there's 22 million illegal aliens. So this is a, a crisis that was created by, the, by Biden. It's, it's what he wants. They want un unfettered access to to the border they're letting them in it's it's a real hardship on the on the working people of texas and other border states and now it's a real hardship on cities that the federal government as well as the governors of texas and other states are sending some of the migrants to those so-called sanctuary cities every sunday from 11 join michael portillo there will be topical discussion looking at the week before and the week to come so kick back and relax at 11 a.m on sundays on gb news with me michael portillo gb news the people's channel britain's news channel
Hello, good evening. It's me, Jacob Rees-Mogg, on State of the Nation tonight. The Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, may face a vote of no confidence led by the Scottish Nationalists, but no Speaker should be removed lightly. As the independent reviewer of Prevent, William Shawcross, warns today that the public is at risk of extremism, what does it say about the state of Britain? Politicians are cowing to sectarian mobs. A new report has revealed the extent to which mass migration is fueling the housing crisis, with net migration at nearly three-quarters of a million. How can we expect housing to be affordable? Plus, it's State of the Nation Book Club. Chris Brett reveals a centuries-long campaign to besmirch the legacy of Admiral Lord Nelson in his new book, Nelson and the Slave Trade, available in fine bookstores everywhere. State of the Nation starts now. I'll also be joined by my most intellectual panel this evening, GB News' senior political commentator Nigel Nelson and the former Conservative MP and commentator Paul Goodman. As you know, as always, I want to hear from you. It's a crucial part of the programme. Email me, mailmog at gbnews.com. But now it's what you've all been waiting for, the news of the day with Polly Middlehurst. Jacob, thank you, and good evening to you. Well, the top story from the GB Newsroom tonight is that the Prime Minister says he's very concerned about the Commons Speaker's handling of the Gaza ceasefire debate yesterday. It comes after dozens of MPs stormed out of Parliament last night with tempers flaring as the three biggest political parties sought to outmanoeuvre one another over the vote. Sir Lindsay Hoyle has since reiterated his apology for allowing both the government and Labour amendments to be debated. Rishi Sunak says changing the usual way Parliament works is a very slippery soap. The Speaker has apologised, is my understanding, for what happened last night because the usual ways in which Parliament works were changed and that is concerning. The Speaker said he's going to reflect on that. But the substance of this and the government's position is very clear. We want to see an immediate pause in what's happening in Gaza so that we can get more aid in and, crucially, get the hostages out, including the British hostages. And we can use that as a foundation to build a sustainable, lasting ceasefire. But that involves Hamas having no part to play in future governance of Gaza. Rishi Sunak. Well, 67 MPs have now signed a motion of no confidence in Sir Lindsay Hoyle and they're calling on him to resign. That includes more than half of MPs in the Scottish National Party, with SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn telling the Speaker his position is now untenable. However, Sir Keir Starmer says the Speaker did the right thing by selecting Labour's amendment in the debate, but denies threatening him or influencing in any way. A fourth person has been charged with criminal damage after a Greenpeace demonstration at Rishi Sunak's home last August. The activist climbed onto the roof of the Prime Minister's home in Yorkshire, draping huge sheets of black fabric over it. It comes after the Crown Prosecution Service authorised criminal charges against three others earlier on this week, two women and a man. Now, in the United States, the former Prime Minister Liz Truss has taken to the stage at the Conservative Political Action Programme. I can tell you she's been speaking in the last half hour. And she has questioned the debate on gender identity and argued that in Britain, too many Conservatives go along with left-wing ideas. The former Prime Minister is in Washington to speak alongside Nigel Farage and Donald Trump, who will make the headline speech on Saturday. 
The UK and Jordan have teamed up to airdrop crucial aid to a hospital in northern Gaza. The UK-funded shipment flown in by the Jordanian Air Force includes essential medicines, fuel and food. The Foreign Secretary, Lord David Cameron, says it will have an immediate impact, adding thousands of patients will benefit from the life-saving airdrop. It comes as international calls continue for an urgent humanitarian pause to speed up additional aid delivery. Russian dissident Alexei Navalny's mother has attacked Russian investigators of planning to bury her son in secret without a funeral after days of struggling to persuade them to hand over his body. In a video published online, Ladmina Navalny said she had take, was taken to a morgue last night to see her son's body with his death certificate suggesting he died of natural causes. Martin Navalny's family also accused the Russian president of orchestrating his murder. The Kremlin, though, says Putin had nothing to do with his death. For the very latest stories, do sign up for GB News Alerts. Scan the QR code on your screen or go to gbnews.com alerts. For the best part of three years, I worked with Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, on a daily basis when Parliament was sitting. Knowing him as I do, I have absolutely com absolute confidence in his suitability to remain Speaker. Lindsay is a man of the greatest integrity, honour and impartiality. Of Leader of the House, or indeed as Shadow Leader, there are endless discussions that go on about the decision a Speaker has to make every day. Sometimes these go in your favour, sometimes not. On occasions, they cause political inconvenience, sometimes for your opponents rather than for you. But all sides need to have confidence that the Speaker makes his decisions with the best interests of the House of Commons at heart. And I am absolutely convinced that Lindsay does this. He is there to protect the interests of all members of the House of Commons, not the government of the day. And inevitably, some of his decisions will annoy, rile and irritate the government side. And this is what happened yesterday. The Speaker, thinking he was acting for the best and in the interests of all members of Parliament, decided to break with tradition, which he is entitled to do, whether this decision was right or wrong. But that is not the fundamental point. What matters is whether he made it impartially and free from undue influence. And I am confident that he made it in the right spirit, regardless of whether the decision was the one the clerks advised. Ultimately, the Speaker needs to rise above the rows that take place on the floor of the House. He is the impartial arbiter, the judge, the Dickie Bird, says to speak, of the proceedings that take place. And I therefore hope that my fellow Conservatives, who have signed, a few of them, a vote of no confidence in him, will reflect on what they're doing, because they're really helping the SNP, Scottish Nationalist Party, which wishes to destroy the United Kingdom and, of course, wants to undermine our institutions. So when it has an opportunity to kick a speaker, it will naturally take it. But why should Conservatives, Tories, join in? Shouldn't they recognise that in the interests of the Constitution and the dignity of Parliament, they, we, should sometimes accept, indeed quite often accept, that a speaker will make a decision in good faith that we do not like? There is, however, one thing about which we should be even more concerned and that is about the safety of the body politic. Are members of Parliament free to vote in the Commons without being afraid of the consequences? If they're not, democracy itself is under threat, along with individual members, and the history of this is so important. If you go back to the reign of Elizabeth I, 
an MP, Peter Wentworth, was put in prison by the House for saying, none is without fault, no, not our gracious Queen. If we are back to a state where what you say in the House could put you in prison or could put you at threat, at threat rather than in prison, then that says something serious about the state of the United Kingdom. If Parliament bows to a sectarian mob, well, the independent reviewer of Prevent, Sir William Shawcross, has given an interview to The Telegraph one year after the publication of his review. Sir William has said that extremism is not being effectively tackled by the government and that it hasn't fully implemented his proposals. And he seems to be right. Since the 7th of October attacks in Israel, we have seen the emboldening of extremists in London every weekend. Calls for jihad, explicit support for and glorification of terrorism, of Hamas, Hezbollah and the Houthis. We have also seen a huge spike in anti-Semitism last night outside Parliament as the Commons was erupting on the inside, pro-Palestine protesters projected onto Parliament itself from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. When GB News's very own Martin Daubney pointed this out, the police did nothing. Sir William Shawcross rather presciently warned ministers about Islamists, extremists a year ago. You can't help think that if we had acted earlier, we may have stopped the situation we are in today where politicians feel the need to cow to sectarian mobs to intimidate Jewish people, members of Parliament and the public at large. As ever, let me know your thoughts. Now, I'm very fortunate today to be joined by, as you know, my most intellectual panel, Nigel Nelson and Paul Goodman, but also GB News's Martin Daubney, who was at the protest last night. And, Martin, I want to come to you first, and we can show the pictures, because sure. you were actually attacked last night. That's right. So I left the studio here at six-ish and I um, came into Parliament Square and the first thing I saw were those images being projected onto Elizabeth Tower, Big Ben. And very quickly I could see where they're being projected from. It was a makeshift device um, strapped to the, the railings at Parliament Square going across. We've got images of that to show, I believe. We can, we can and, show it. And um, I said to the police, I know that's an offence because it was made an offence in 2016 when images were projected onto Parliament during the run-up to the Brexit referendum. So it's not a billboard. It's not something you can just do lightly. And it is a civil offence. There can be, I believe, a massive financial fine unless you have a licence. This obviously wasn't licensed. Well, I pointed this out to the police. I said, you know they're breaking laws. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to arrest them? Uh, my colleagues are dealing with that. And then I walked through Parliament Square, the multiple men in ski masks, IRA balaclavas. Now, you know, Jacob, a couple of weeks ago, new laws were passed, £1,000 fine on the spot or a month in jail for refusing to remove that. I again pointed out to police, that guy should get nicked. What are you going to do? They looked the other way. They weren't interested. At which point a mob gathered around me and the next thing that happened, I, I was... Um, fluid was thrown over... Me. Now, in the heat of the moment, it could have been anything. It was Abdulazidi we've seen at the moment going on. And then finally, the, the zenith, if you like, was um, I was egged. I was egged twice by a young um, lady. And the police simply watched. And when she walked off, she didn't even jog. She walked off. The officer, again, we got some footage of that, took two strides and just did a U-turn and came well, back. Well, let's, let's look at the footage that we've got. Oh, 
So there were plenty of police there, there but they weren't willing to intervene. And there were multiple riot vans um, around the Churchill statue. Mercifully, finally, that was being protected by a ring of police. There were about 15 officers around that. I was two yards away from that. And they simply looked on. Not only that, but I was repeatedly asking them to make an, you know, an interference to get involved to arrest people, and they had no interest whatsoever. Now they did log what happened to me as an assault. I was quite surprised to, to find out that egging is an assault. But of course, Jeremy Corbyn was egged. People went to prison for that. Prince Charles, as he was then, was egged. People went to prison for that. And it just seemed to me that the police were. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They were they were standoffish to the point of a dereliction of duty, and I believe they don't want to make arrests because they want a nice clean bill of health in the morning. It was mostly peaceful, despite the fact there were tangible and clear multiple offences being committed in plain sight. And when they were instructed by somebody like myself who understands the law to do something, they literally had no they interest had whatsoever. To do. And, Paul, this is a problem, isn't it? Because if the police do nothing, then people who are going into Parliament are going to feel uh, that there is a degree of risk, hence the pressure on the Speaker uh, earlier in the day. Well, obviously, policing is a difficult matter at the best of times, but what Martin has just said and related is deeply shocking. And it's almost as though you're watching something from Babylon, Berlin, the series about Germany in the late 20s, where the authorities are losing control of the streets. And legitimate protest is one thing, but the kind of uh, incident that Martin has described, um, or people having to be removed if they have signs saying Hamas is a terrorist organisation, or the assault on an Iranian near assault outside the Foreign Office, uh, or the uh, women with paragliders, or the chance of jihad, all this is very serious stuff. And while I'm absolutely convinced there's a right to demonstrate, I don't think there's a right to bring London to a halt every weekend. And the authorities should not be allowing this to happen. And Andrew Percy had something to say on this, which I think we can see. For months I've been standing up here talking about the people on our streets demanding death to Jews, demanding jihad, demanding intifadas, as the police stand by and allow that to happen. Last night, a genocidal call for from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, was projected onto this building. That, that message says no Jew is welcome in uh, the state of Israel or in that land. Well, Nigel, that was pretty shocking, wasn't it, that um, on Parliament itself a genocidal message was projected. That's not freedom of speech or free protest. Um, I mean, certainly the fact it, the fact it was um, uh, put on Parliament, yes. I'm not sure that the phrase itself is genocidal. Okay. I think there are different interpretations of that. But clearly, as Martin just said, it would be, it would be a breach of the law to do it in the first place. Um, and it's extraordinary that the police didn't intervene. The only reasons, that reasons I can see where police 
should not intervene in situations like that is if they think it'll make it worse. I'm, I'm actually much more concerned that Martin can be egged in public with police standing by and nothing's done, because nobody's injured when a rude message is put on Parliament. Mm. But a physical assault is disorder in a public place. Surely that's the job of the police to intervene. And, that and, and the way that Martin describes it, that, that's my view too. Well, I really think that they, they should have acted. peculiar situation in that... The sort of traditional saying is policing by consent. But what this raises is a very big question about mm. what is consent when you're basically trying to get the consent of a mob. And what Martin is relating is that simply no action was taken in relation to him because the police were operating in a way that suggested they thought they needed the consent of what in those pictures isn't a, a group of orderly protesters, it's a mob. Well, the oath of policing used to be to police without fear or favour. And I said to the officer last night, you aren't doing that. You're policing with fear for that mob and you're in favour of what they stand for and the rest of us can be damned. Yes, they, um, the police also have to allow freedom of protest. Freedom of protest is so fundamental to our democracy. And I was shaking hands with protesters and I was interviewed by well, a few of them and I was getting on with them and I said, you had that right. Because interestingly, I walked stuff. back and forth to here a couple of times yeah. and everyone, there weren't that many people, but they were perfectly friendly, the ones I passed. Yeah, but things changed, changed as the when it's dark and as, as things wear on. And the point is, everyone can shout, everyone can have an opinion. When you start throwing stuff, when you start throwing fluids, it's a very different matter and more to the point, the police literally had no interest. I think they want, they want next to no arrest so they can pretend it's gone peacefully. I, I just want a very quick word before we move on, on Mr Speaker. So there's both no confidence in him. Um, Paul, you're a former MP. Do you think people should be careful of what they wish for? Well, in relation to the Speaker, um, first of all, it's not a fuss about nothing. Parliament's procedures have got to be fair or it can't really preach fairness to anyone else. And the Speaker sort of knows that because he's apologised. And that he's apologised is very important and basically taken the wind, I think, out of the sails of the people who want him gone. Now, for me, the really interesting question is why on earth was the Speaker apparently lobbied in this way by senior people in the Labour Party? And what it sort of indicates to me is that basically um, I think Keir Starmer is essentially a sort of decent guy, but he has not got a grip on extremism and anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And he just literally doesn't really know what to do when the safety of his MPs, as he would see it, is under threat. And he clearly he has to go to the Speaker to beg him to, to um, mess around with the procedure in order to protect them. I think that's shocking. And it does show that this Labour's got a real problem here. Nigel? Um, well, I think that what the Speaker did yesterday was absolutely right. He's one of the few MPs, I thought, who actually behaved with real integrity during the whole thing. Everything was about scoring political points. And the idea that this was meant to be about the slaughter of women and children in Gaza seemed to go completely by the board. So I thought it was a shameful episode uh, in the Commons. What the Speaker tried to do was come up with a compromise that would have worked if MPs had allowed it to. Um, now, whether or not that, that, that you've got to keep following procedure absolutely rigidly, I think, like every rule, there must be an exception. Here was an exception. MPs could have been put, put at risk. The Speaker was trying to do the right thing. It did turn into a shambles, and that's what he's apologised for. if the government for. had put its motion, all three motions would have been... Heard. So you'd have had Labour, SNP and the government. Yes. But the government, there was a procedural reason why the government was worried. Uh, so the Metropolitan Police has responded with the following statement. 
Um, this is a chant that has been frequently heard at pro-Palestinian demonstrations for many years, and we are very aware of the strength of feeling in relation to it. While there are scenarios where chanting or using these words could be unlawful depending on the specific location or context, its use in a wider public protest setting, such as last night, is not a criminal offence. Unlawful is not a criminal offence. Illegal is a criminal offence. You would hope the Metropolitan Police would know the difference. Anyway, thank you to my panel and to Martin. Coming up next, we'll be discussing the extent to which the housing crisis is being driven by mass migration. Plus, we'll be uncancelling one of Britain's most loved historical heroes, Admiral the Lord Nelson. GB News, unlike other broadcasters, isn't obsessed with the London-Westminster bubble. We think there's a nation beyond the M25, and that's why we talk about the issues that matter across the land. Join me on State of the Nation, 8 to 9 o'clock, Monday to Thursday, on GB News. Daisy's listening, and you should too. Now then, Lee Anderson here. Join me on GB News on my show, The Real World, every Friday at 7 p.m. I'm not eating bloody cat. Are you Delicious. Open your mouth. OK, here comes, a, here comes a train. Reminds me of the scene in Singing in the Rain. Adam, is that a good one? <laughs> Join me at 7 on GB News, Britain's news channel. Britain's Newsroom, weekday mornings from 9.30. Are you across this microaggression story? I, I'm across microaggressions. It's I'm also across XL bullies. You would not last five minutes. Oh, for God's so sake, civil servants, give me strength. So civil servants have been taught not to roll their eyes, <laughs> something you do very well. We both do it quite a lot, actually. Because it's seen as an act of microaggression. This, By the way, this costs <laughs> the taxpayer, this yes? training, £160,000. What the hell is going on in our woke civil service? Who Ooh. cares if someone rolls their eyes okay. in exasperation? What, what the hell is going on in our civil service, full stop, if the way that civil servants are communicating with each other is rolling their eyes and looking at their phones? I mean, is the government being run by people who are essentially acting to each other like stroppy teenagers? Yeah. But I, I, I'm all right with people, mm. because, you see, I would be in defence of eye-rolling. So me, me too, because, I couldn't care less. But do you know why? Because I want people to give me their genuine reaction. As long as it's mm. not deeply offensive. But I want to know how people feel. And what they're being told here, civil servants are being taught, and of course this is an, an area of employment law because people are taking cases against their bosses who roll their eyes at them. They're saying they're being encouraged um, to uh, say nothing and nod their heads to promote transparency and inclusion. Don't show what you really think, just nod your head. Mm. But I think that comes with then saying what you really think. And this is, this is the key problem and what these, uh, what these courses are, are trying to establish. And I looked into some of them uh, when, I was, uh, when I was researching this. And it's not saying hide what you're feeling. It's saying rather than huffing and puffing and rolling your eyes, if you've got a disagreement with someone, say I've got a disagreement with someone. But because otherwise, you can't have an effective workplace if people are sort of just passively, aggressively huffing at each why other. why do these civil servants need to be taught this? <laughs> Why do people need to be taught this? This is just normal discourse in a normal working day. You don't need a seminar on it. Good afternoon, Britain. Good afternoon, Britain. Join us, Tom and Emily, to find out what's happening in the heart of Westminster. And why it matters to you. Weekdays from midday, we bring you the most compelling stories from across the United Kingdom. And from your doorstep to our inbox. That's right, we want to hear from you. GB News. Britain's news channel.
Well, welcome back. We've been talking about Mr. Speaker and extremism and the risks to the body politic, and you've been sending in your views. Peter says, if Starmer stated he did not threaten Hoyle but did push his reasons, is this statement itself an admission of cohesion? They should both be ousted. And Mike says, I believe that Sir Lindsay Hoyle is a good man who has been ill-used by some of his colleagues. So thank you for the mail, Moggs, as always. So the fundamental problem with the housing crisis is a simple matter of supply and demand. We don't build enough, and we have a growing population. A new analysis from the Conservative MP Neil O'Brien merely confirms what we knew to be true. In London, 67% of privately rented households were headed by someone born overseas. And although the number of new homes has increased in London by 10% since 2011, the share of London's population that had arrived from overseas since 2011 was 16.6%. This is also a problem on a national scale. We're expected, forecast even, to reach a total population of 70 million by 2026, and yet we're only building about 230,000 houses a year. So surely the solution to the housing crisis is as simple as building more, but also taking charge of our borders. Well, I'm joined now by James Prince, Director of Government Engagement at the Adam Smith Institute and former Chief of Staff of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And, of course, my intellectual panel, Nigel Nelson and Paul Goodman. Um, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, do you think that Neil O'Brien is right, that if we have mass migration, we simply need to be building more houses? Yeah, absolutely right. I think the problem that we get with this debate sometimes is that people say either it's stop having people come into the country or build new houses. Even if migration gets to zero tomorrow, a magic wand is waved, everybody stops coming in, uh, we still are going to have to, a, a really bad housing crisis on our hands. There's still not nearly been enough houses that have been built, and there's lots of different reasons for that. But as you say, with the, the net figures coming in, well, was it last year? Over 700,000 people coming in and not nearly enough homes for them. It doesn't take some kind of genius to know that there's a problem there. And, and the bit that always gets me on the, the human level of this, beyond all the economics that we can talk about and the problems, where will these people end up living? And, and so whilst it is the case that migrants tend to live in sort of smaller, more dense properties, so you can see tiny little flats and studio flats and things like that, it's not a very nice, exciting life for some of these people to be coming in. And you end up getting people that, that all have three people sharing a room and staying there on shifts and things like that, as well as all the other problems that we see. But also that changes, doesn't it? So one of the reasons you need to build more houses with the existing population is that housing density has been declining mm -hmm. for all of the last 100 years and that it declines fastest with a new immigrant population. When they come in first, they may be all squeezed in, very hugger-mugger, but as time goes on, of course they make a bit of money, uh, they want to live in more comfortable surroundings, and so you need more housing um, not just for them as they come in, but as the density uh, decreases over the ensuing years. Yeah, absolutely right. And you get problems with things like uh, something like stamp duty, then that gums up the housing market even further, and it means that people don't downsize sometimes uh, because it costs too much to do that. So you have older couples just on their own, but in great big houses, and you've got people having smaller families than they'd like to have. You know, I think we all agree on this show that big families is a very good thing. <laughs> well, I certainly uh, Absolutely do. <laughs> right. And, right, and the, the, not everybody can have as many kids as they want to have because they don't have the space for it. All these other problems in there as well. And part of it is the fact that the, the town and country 
Country Planning Act of the late 1940s and the Attlee government has prevented the growth of, of homes. And because the system is now so difficult, the bit that it's really important for people to understand is that all the houses that do get built, if they're, if they're ugly or they're, they're not very nice houses, a big part of the problem is it's so expensive to get all the planning permission done. You can't spend money on nice designs and on nice materials. Nobody would mind, I'm sure you'd agree as a Somerset man, if we had another bath or three. I agree with every, every word you're saying, so I'd better go to Nigel. Come <laughs> on, Nigel, you've got to put the argument for the Socialist Town and Country Planning Act, <laughs> one, one of the last remaining well, socialist I mean, failures. Quite clearly, we need to build more houses. You're absolutely, you're both absolutely right there. Um, it does look like that migration is quite low down the list of reasons why, uh, which is causing the, the, the housing crisis. So it may have an effect on the margins, but not necessarily is a major cause. If people can't afford to buy a home, A, because there aren't any, or B, because mortgages are now ridiculously high, you'll need four and a half times uh, annual income to afford a mortgage now. It was only two times under Margaret Thatcher. So there's a whole host of other reasons, but I think where we'd all agree is let's build more houses so more people can live in them. Paul, are you going to disagree well, with this? You're waiting for someone to come on the show and say they believe in building less houses or none. I'm not going to be that person. I, okay, I, okay. I, agree, I agree with okay, James so you, and with Nigel. You're a former MP. Need... I'm a current MP. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, whenever houses were proposed in your constituency, are proposed in my constituency, there's very considerable opposition. How do we get over that and build the houses that we need in the it's right It's extremely place? difficult. In, in government, you were, I think it's greatly to your credit, one of the main advocates of building more houses. I suspect the answer might be that we've reached the limit of trying to build a lot in a lot of places. Uh, your colleagues and other MPs simply won't have it. I mean, maybe, and this is a debate that goes around in housing circles from time to time, we need to be thinking about building more in a few places and reviving the spirit of the new towns from earlier in British history. Well, you see, I think that's a very exciting idea. I think building new towns, um, but building them more as suburbs, the garden suburb idea, which is actually what people want. They, they want bigger houses, and we've been building smaller houses. They want some space around their house, and we've been shrinking the space around houses. And you can do that if you build a garden suburb. Yeah, absolutely right. But I think the, the problem comes from the fact that the people who now own their own homes have a really good blocking ability to have any other new properties, as you say, coming along. And this is this sort of slightly mean phrase of being a NIMBY or not in my backyard. And I think the problem is getting so acute and it's getting such a big economic problem. As I say, it's caused people not to have the size of families they want and all these things. That that view of that empty field that you've got that you might drive past, that's going to have to go and it's going to have to be turned into a town. Or you're never going to be able to own a home, your children are going to grow up to be communists. And it's uh, not all the fault of immigrants coming over. Well, I hope my children don't grow up to be communists. Um, <laughs> Nigel, that would be too much for you. Um, uh, but, but isn't it state control actually has failed and that you want to move to a more zoning system and give people more freedom over their own property? Because part of the problem with planning is it consistently builds ugly things 
and that maximises the opposition from people who will be living nearby. Yes, I mean, you want to, you want to see homes that actually suit the area they're being built in. Um, but, but, but the big problem is that MPs are always objecting to uh, building projects in their own constituencies. The big problem is planning. And until you, until you reform the planning laws, which Labour says they will do to get, to get 150 million... Sorry, um, 1.5 million homes, um, th until that is done, we're not going to be able to progress and there won't be any affordable housing for young people. And if Labour wins all the th seats that it's claiming it will win in rural areas, it'll suddenly be much tougher on planning than it's thinking it will be now. Because it'll have all the problems that the Conservatives got. Anyway, thank you very much to James Price and to my panel. Coming up, the civil service wants to reduce its hours to a four-day working week, if only it worked that much. Which, what could possibly be wrong with that? Plus, we'll be re-fortifying Nelson's column against recent besmirchment and not just by the pigeons. I'm Christopher Hope. And I'm Gloria DiPiero, bringing you... PMQ's Live here on GB News. Every Wednesday, we'll bring you live coverage of Prime Minister's Questions when Rishi Sunak and Sir Keir Starmer go head-to-head -head in the House of Commons. We'll be asking our viewers and listeners to submit the questions that they would like to put to the Prime Minister, and we'll put that to our panel of top politicians in our Westminster studio. That's PMQ's Live here on GB News, Britain's election channel. The Camilla Tomini Show, Sunday mornings from 9.30. Questions to be answered, and there seem to be a significant amount, does once again point its way to a public inquiry into exactly what happened in this case. Starmer's called for that. Would you call for that too? I, I certainly think that, 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 first of all, there's one thing that's happening now. The NHS have to uh, order an independent inquiry. That's been done. So they've got to look at all the whys and wherefores of what happened with this man. If it appears that we're not getting sufficient depth and breadth to this, then I think having an inquiry with all the powers that that brings would be extremely advantageous. What I don't want is some long-winded inquiry that will take years, mm. by which time other people will have been put at risk and maybe other lives have lost. We know what the problems are here, Camilla. Law's been passed on mm. this. This is all about making sure on the ground we implement uh, 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 the highest degree of monitoring in order to ensure the safety of the public. Has care in the community failed? I mean, it seems oxymoronic to say that it's care in the community in this case. Mm. We know that uh, the number of psychiatric care beds has been slashed from 52,000 back in 2001 mm. to 24,000 now. Mm. I've anecdotally, because I wrote my column about this in The Telegraph yesterday, received quite a lot of correspondence from people saying the situation with care in the community is dire. People aren't be adequately monitored. Was it a mistake to close down all of those mental institutions? I don't think we should go back to that those days when we had those appalling institutions where we just lock people away and forget about them. And not just mental health people, but autistic people and mm. disabled people. Horrific way to mm. treat individuals. And you know I campaigned on that a lot. I know. However, I think if we move into a more uh, community-based approach, which can be really good for many, many people who are on the spectrum and on that scale of mental health, we have to remember there will be a, 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 a small but significant number who will continue to pose a danger. Okay. And that's why monitoring is so important. I'm Michelle Jubery, and I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'd much rather hear what you have to say. Sir, send in your opinions to gbviews at gbnews.com. Keep them clean and you never know, I might read them out. With my panel here on Jubes & Co, we debate, we get stuck into the issues of the day on a show where all views are welcome, especially 
yours. GB News, the people's channel, Britain's news channel. Well, thank you very much for staying with us. We've been discussing mass migration and housing, and you've been sending in your trenchant views. David says, no country in the world can build houses fast enough to cope with immigration. And Brian, in relation actually to the first segment, says the police use footage to identify offenders, which they appear shy to do. Then let's use that footage to identify the police for neglect of duty. It's a very clever point, Brian. Um, civil servants are demanding a four-day working week for exactly the same pay. The Public and Commercial Services Union, which represents over 200,000 civil servants, has asked for a significant shortening of hours without any salary changes. In a letter to the Cabinet Office, the General Secretary of the Public and Commercial Services Union has also called for a pay rise and more annual leave. They'll never be in at all. This comes as most companies who took part in the four-day week trial have decided to stick with the policy. Bosses report improvements to the physical and mental health of employees, with 96% of staff saying a shorter week was more fun. Well, with me now is my panel, GB News' senior political commentator, Nigel Nelson, and the former Conservative MP and commentator, Paul Goodman. Nigel, people are very fed up with a lack of efficiency in the public services, aren't they? And is this the time to be demanding even less working? Well, or more efficiency. Um, I mean, would you object to a four-day working week if you got 100% of the work done in 80% of the time? Would it make any difference at all to the workload of civil servants to do that? I, I might not if we were getting 100% of the work done in the five-day week, whereas at the moment we seem to be getting half the work done in a five-day week with a lot of it done from home. Well, it, it, then that's a different problem, isn't it? That the whole thing is that whenever experiments are done on the four-day week, they seem to come out quite positively. Initially. There's a very good piece about this, I think, by Danny Finkelstein in The Times, saying that, yes, when you do it, for the first three months, it works, and as time goes by, it ceases to work. And that the novel encourages people. So working from home was quite productive to start with, but once people get used to it, it becomes less productive. And the same with the four-day week. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's been working in Germany where they reduced hours to, th to 34. Um, Belgium have a law that actually says that, that a worker can ask for, for a, a four-day week. And the, I think it was the 61 companies who took part in the trial in this country a year ago, um, nine out of ten of those, co uh, those companies continued with a four-day week after six months. They said, yeah, the first month or so, bit hairy, took a while to get used to it. But once everyone had bedded in, sickness went down, productivity at least remained the same. But sickness is greater in the public sector, which has lower hours than it is in the private sector. Isn't it a habit of not working properly, of thinking you're entitled to sick days off? And there's just a bad culture in the civil service. But, it, but that's, it, are we talking about different things here? That if you improve the working life of the people there, if this, if this evidence is right and, and uh, there's less absenteeism on a four-day week than a five-day week, um, if you're improving that, that would work, work as well for the public sector as well as the private sector. Well, the thing I'm not convinced about is that if they're not working properly to start with, they won't suddenly work properly when you make life easier for them. They'll work even less well. You, you need to have 
evidence, of course, and really we can discuss this back and forth, that it's not working properly. But you also kind of need to make a decision about whether it would be more or less likely to work well in the long term on a four-day week, and I think the jury's out on that. And the question I'd ask, and I hope I'm not asking this in a frivolous spirit, is I'm curious to know where you would stop. I mean, might it be more efficient still to go down to three days? Or two, or two. I mean, where is the dividing line and what's the evidence that shows us where it should be drawn? Well, I think that's very interesting because you find with working from home that that doesn't suit all people and some people find that their mental health suffers from the loneliness uh, of not being in a community at work. Well, it's, it's horses for courses, but I think if you stand back from what's happening both in the private and the, in the public sector, this is probably all part of the great adjustment we're making. Some people say after lockdown, I say after COVID. I think after you have an enormous event like that, the shockwaves are bound to be felt through the public and the private sector, and this debate is part of it. It's part of that, and that actually you need to get productivity back. And we aren't getting productivity. We've had a 30-year problem with productivity, and the public sector's productivity is lower than it was in 1997 even though they've had all sorts of improvements in working conditions in that period. But, but what you're saying is they're just not very good workers. It's not really about whether or not a four-day week would be better for them. Um, when um, uh, Microsoft did it in Japan, productivity went up 40%. Now, no-one's expecting that kind of thing, but if you have the same productivity for fewer hours and the same pay, that is better for the work-life balance yeah, of the individuals and, and then for the, for the organisation. But you say 40% increase in productivity but you need 25% increase in productivity to stand still. So it's not quite as good as it sounds. 20% is not bad either. No, 20% increase in productivity yeah. going from four days from five days means you're doing less. You're more productive in the four days, but you need 25% to get four to five. Um, we can discuss <laughs> maths later. Uh, pupils with low behaviour schools are being sent to the back of the food queue. Sounds a bit like Barack Obama and um, trade deals in a Dickensian move by a secondary school. The Attitude to Learning scheme at Dorothy Stringer School in Brighton awards pupils scores based on criteria including respect, creativity and resilience. Those given the best scores are promoted to the front of the queue at break time, while those with the worst scores must wait until others have finished. Is it time to go back to Victorian-style school punishment? Well, I'm joined now by Chris McGovern, former head teacher at the, and chairman of the campaign for... Real education. If you're in favour of real education, you're the headmaster, not the head teacher. Anyway, Mr McGovern, thank you for joining me. Do you think this is a good way uh, of um, encouraging children to behave well? I think the headmaster in, in that school in Brighton should be applauded because what he's doing is giving an incentive for children to behave well. Uh, and also he's protecting children in the queue who are getting bullied. I understand from the school that uh, behaviour has improved considerably in the... In, in, in the uh, in the, in the, it's, it's, it's actually a break time uh, a queue, not a lunch queue. So, yeah, I, I applaud and I, and I think it's a very good move and I wish more headmasters would use the powers that are invested in them. Well, it's a proper incentive, isn't it, to encourage people to behave well, that they then get a, a benefit and giving people rewards for good behaviour seems sensible rather than just punishing people for bad behaviour. I think that's true, Jacob. I, I, what's happening, I think, in the press in the last few days, there's been a few stories about this, We've had the stories from the pupils uh, who've told their parents, you know, we're starving and all this sort of stuff. And if we have a problem in schools, it's not starvation, it's obesity. But that's beside the point, I suppose. But look, uh, you can't just rely on what children tell parents. And most parents, I think, will support what the headmaster is doing. And certainly it's a good school. It's got a good Ofsted report. And actually, the Ofsted criticism, if there was one, was that 
there could be slightly strips there. And that's what the headmaster's doing, so good for him. And I can't help noticing you've got a portrait of um, Sir and St Thomas More behind you, who is, of course, friend of John Collett, a great educationist, uh, and Erasmus. Um, is it fair of me to ask you what you think Thomas More would have thought of this? Well, Thomas More was an interesting on education. He's a great supporter of women's education, of course, and his own daughter, Margaret, was educated very well. Uh, he, he would have stood for tradition, I think, and, and principles and standards. I and mean, that's what Victorians stood for. We tend to denigrate the Victorians, but in the Victorian period, we had unparalleled progress in all areas of life, including living standards. So a bit more Victorianism would do us good, I think. Yes, absolutely, and it encourages children and gives them certainty and, and routine, uh, circumstances under which they tend to thrive. Absolutely. Uh, look, most children want order. If you ask children what do they want most of all, you, you will find they're on the right, uh, particularly young children, and, and they want order and they want safety and protection. They like teachers who lay down the law. As a head teacher, I didn't consider myself especially strict, but we had a red line, you didn't cross it. I think children want to know what's where they stand and they want protection from the bullies and i think that's a good sign and so why i'm saying the headmaster in this particular case is doing a good job and should carry on doing it and we want more heads like him absolutely and this is a story that other um, headmasters and mistresses can hear about and can implement if it's working in the dorothy stringer school yeah i think you know headmasters these days too many of them lack the guts to be honest to take a stand um, what can say are basic principles of behaviour? We have a breakdown of order in schools. Some of this gets reported, most of it doesn't. And a lot of children these days, or increasingly, have been homeschooled, and, and they're because they're afraid to go to school. We have breakdown. We have, we have we have airport security at the entrance to many schools in London, and it's going to expand. So we have a problem. We need heads with guts, heads who will give a lead, and we need heads to stand for some basic principles, wherever they may be, as long as they're for the safety and the and the, and the, and the progress of children. Well, thank you very much, Mr McGovern. I think people would have been very lucky to be at your school. Um, the Dorothy Stringer School said the system recognises and rewards students who demonstrate a positive attitude to learning in school, something that is already celebrated in assemblies. A small number of students with a specific need linked to canteen entry already have passes that allow them to bypass the, the queue. Well, well done to them. Um, coming up, we'll be getting to the bottom of the debate over whether Admiral the Lord Nelson supported the slave trade or not in the latest edition of the State of the Nation Book Club. Twenty twenty four, a battleground year. The year the nation decides. As the parties gear up their campaigns for the next general election. Who will be left standing when the British people make one of the biggest decisions of their lives? Who will rise and who will fall? Let's find out together. For every moment, the highs, the lows, the twists and turns. We'll be with you for every step of this journey. In twenty twenty four, GB News is Britain's election channel. Good afternoon, Britain. Weekdays from midday. Francis, just stop oil have in the past broken the law. I remember distinctly the uh, Dartford crossing. That ended up with two jailed, I believe, if I remember correctly. Is it ever justified in your view? Hi, uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I mean, I would, I would have to say yes. I mean, we're trying to preserve my life, your lives, the lives of your family, and it's not just the planet that we're trying to protect, it's the lives of, of millions of people. And, you know, we know from history that we have to break the law in order to, to put pressure on the government and to, to be listened to. 
No one would doubt your sincerity in your views. You genuinely believe in what you fight for. But there are others who think differently. For example, there are Islamist extremists who believe that people will go to hell unless they convert to Islam. They will sincerely, perhaps, break the law in order to force people to convert. In their view, they might be saving people's lives for eternity. There might be abortion activists who say that babies are being murdered and to save their lives, we need to break the law to stop people having abortions. Why do you get to say that your moral conviction is the one that's right and other people's individual moral conviction are those that are wrong? So what's really integral to the Just Stop Oil campaign is the fact that it is a non-violent campaign. That's what separates us from the examples that you've just given. We're absolutely dedicated non-violence, both as a tactic and as a principle. So though we might be breaking the law... If individuals take it upon themselves to break the law for whatever their course is, surely the way that we decide what society wants in general is democratic and within the law. Well, of course, we know also that protest is absolutely integral to maintaining and upholding a democracy, and in particular, non-violent protest. I mean, I really can't express to you how severe this situation is, and I'm sure you know this. I'm Michelle Jubery, and I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'd much rather hear what you have to say. So, send in your opinions to gbviews at gbnews.com. Keep them clean, and you never know, I might read them out. With my panel here on Jubes & Co, we debate, we get stuck into the issues of the day on a show where all views are welcome, especially yours. GB News, the people's channel, Britain's news channel. Welcome back. In recent years, as the attack on British history has intensified, there's been a concerted effort to discredit Admiral the Lord Nelson, the man who defeated Napoleon Buonaparte at Trafalgar in 1805. We even saw so-called anti-racism campaigners call for the toppling of Nelson's column, owing to claims that the Admiral was a supporter of the slave trade. But a new book, Nelson and the Slave Trade, has revealed the extent of the centuries-long campaign to discredit Lord Nelson. The source of the claims about Lord Nelson's support for the slave trade comes from a private letter which appeared to suggest he supported the trade. But my next guest and author of the book has shown the letter was actually forged by plantation owners after Nelson's death as a means of bolstering support against the abolitionist movement. It should hardly be surprising that Nelson's name has been vindicated. But it just goes to show the cynical opportunists among us who jump on such opportunities to discredit one of the great men of British history. State of the Nation Book Club starts now. Well, with me now is the man himself, the author of Nelson and the Slave Trade and chairman of the Nelson Society, Chris Brett. Um, Chris, thank you for coming back on the programme. It's good Pleasure. to see you again. Now, your argument is that Nelson just did his duty. He upheld the law of the land as it was. He was in favour of the colonies because the British economy was completely dependent upon them. Um, but that didn't make him a slaver. Correct, yes. The, the situation is that uh, Nelson was uh, a serving officer, a high-ranking serving officer in, in the Navy, and his role was to uh, fulfil his duty, and his duty was to the Crown and to the country. And he would basically execute that um, whatever those orders were, I guess. Um, but we, we do find information about his 
private thoughts, if you like, on, on slavery and the slave trade uh, from the letter that, that you've quoted, the letter he wrote to Simon Taylor, a planter on Jamaica. And if we go to his public life, one of the accusations is he used his public position to back the slave trade. But you've gone through all his speeches in the House of Lords, of which there weren't many. Correct. And he doesn't give any support to slave trade there. No, the, the allegation was that he used his position in the House of Lords to perpetuate the slave trade and, and the attendant horrors of the slave trade. Um, we've uh, researched the speeches he made in the House of Lords uh, between 1801 and 180, end of 1802. He appeared six times and spoke uh, largely on military matters, as you might, might expect. Um, his best friend, Captain Hardy, when he heard that he'd spoken in the House of Lords, said, I don't think sailors should speak too much. <laughs> so I don't think he was necessarily a great orator, but he certainly never referred to the slave trade in, in those, uh, those speeches. And there's no evidence in his letters of any um, attempt at public influence. It's only a, one private letter that really mentions the slave trade. That, that, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the, the, the private letter uh, was one that he had... Uh, copied, as you know, in something called the press letters, which we discussed previously. Um, it wasn't for the Admiralty. And in reality, I think it was a, a plea to the uh, Jamaicans to, to reinstate one of his friends to his living in Jamaica. But he knew the West Indies well. He was out there as a young naval officer. He stayed in plantations or new plantation society. Mm. And he married the child of plantation uh, owners and the at least theoretical heiress to uh, an uncle who had made money out of plantations and therefore of slavery. Quite correct. And I think that Nelson had hoped that uh, the uncle might uh, provide for them, um, but the uncle made it very clear that he certainly couldn't do anything for um, Nelson and Francis during, during his lifetime. Uh, so Nelson came back and had to ask his uncle for money none of which was forthcoming. And did any money come from the uncle at a no, later stage? Not, not, at, not at all. Um, and I think this is the, a key point, that Nelson could not be seen to be a beneficiary of the slave trade or, or slavery. And the private letter that has been not, not quite forged but sort of fiddled with... Yeah. Now, first of all, tell me about the press books, because you found them in the British Library. Yes. And this is really exciting, because the original is copied. How is it copied? Nelson originally penned the letter in June on, on victory in June 1805, when he was chasing the French across the Atlantic and back. He died at Trafalgar in October 1805, and in the six-week period after that, the planter saw an opportunity to take the letter and, as you say, basically tamper with it. I, I describe it as a forgery because many forgers try to make exact copies with little differences. Um, but the, the planter saw this opportunity of Nelson's death to subtly change that letter to make it seem as though he was pro-slavery. And I think we know that that letter was a forgery because it makes a reference to a fact that was wrong and only became clear uh, once the news of the battle reached Jamaica in uh, January 1806. And a contemporary copy was in Nelson's papers that's ended up at the British Library, which you know is the true copy. Correct. But in that letter, he calls Wilberforce a hypocrite yes. and says he would fight for the current system with his last remaining arm. Yes, and 
that has been taken very much at face value. He's, he's against Wilberforce, therefore he must be pro-slavery. More detailed consideration of that comment shows that the reason why Nelson thought Wilberforce was hypocritical. Nelson always stood up for the poor and the underprivileged. When he was what was called on the beach, stood down on half pay during peaceful times, he wrote to the Prince Regent saying, look, the rural poor of Norfolk can't afford to live. And he set out a detailed case. So he was advocating support for the, the poor. Wilberforce blocked such movements uh, in Parliament and so on. So you could dislike Wilberforce without being pro-slavery? Correct, and that's why you could call him hypocritical. Brilliant. Would... I'm going to have to cut you off at that point, but thank you very much. Nelson is a hero, and he saved us from French tyranny, and therefore Nelson's column, if anything, should be made even higher. Um, anyway, that's all from me. Up next, it's Patrick Christie's. Patrick, what's on your bill of fare this evening? I've got an absolutely massive show for you tonight. Robert Jemrick, former immigration minister, stood up in Parliament and called out Islamic extremism for exactly what it is. He joins me. Andrew Percy, as well, slammed the extremists in Parliament. He joins me. An ex-Labour minister is on to talk about whether or not shameless Keir Starmer has thrown Lindsay Hoyle on the bus. I'm also asking, as well, whether or not Lindsay Hoyle should go. And I've got a moon landing live. Are you not entertained? I'm, everyone will be enjoying that enormously. Do, do um, uh, give my um, regards to Robert Jenrick, uh, who is a thoroughly uh, good thing. It'll be a very interesting programme. That's all coming up after the weather. I'll be back on Monday at 8 o'clock. I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg. This has been State of the Nation. I'm about to drive to Somerset, where I know there will be blue skies, even when I arrive near midnight. It's a miracle of modern science. A brighter outlook with Bob Solar, sponsors of weather on GB News. Good evening. Welcome to your latest weather update with me, Annie, from the Met Office. A mixture of sunshine and showers for many of us on Friday. There is a risk of hail and thunder, though, and it will feel a little bit cooler than of late. That's because this cold front has swept across the country through today, bringing that heavy rain. But behind it, we have got a slightly more typically warm air mass for this time of year, so it will be feeling much closer to average. So that means a colder night tonight, and we will see a westerly wind bringing in showers from the west. So parts of Wales, the southwest, northwest England, Many western areas of Scotland will see some quite persistent showers overnight and these will fall as snow over the highest ground above three or four hundred metres. So it will be a colder start to the day. We could be down as low as minus three or four across parts of northeastern Scotland. But many eastern areas will see a much drier and brighter start to Friday. There will be some fairly pleasant feeling sunshine as well. However, in the west, we will see showers quite quickly developing and these will push into the east by the afternoon. These bring the, that risk of hail and thunder, so it could be quite unpleasant if you do get caught in one. However, in any sunny spells, it will continue to feel fairly pleasant highs of 9 or 10 degrees. On Saturday, after a fairly dry start to the day, we will see the mist and fog clear. It will be fairly chilly, though, and many areas will see a dry rest of the day as well, though some northern areas could see some showers lingering. We'll see some more persistent rain move into the south on Sunday, but many northern areas will get away with a fairly dry weekend. Looks like things are heating up. Boxed boilers, sponsors of weather on GB News. In the GB Newsroom, we bring you the news as it happens with our team of dedicated journalists across the UK. We're ready to give you accurate reporting every day. When the news breaks, we'll be there.